Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, we're about to hear from a former Unilever global marketing exec who in 1998 founded the consumer giant's first internet marketing innovation unit called the Interactive Brand Centre. But that was a long time ago. Mark Deswan-Arons is now founder of the non-profit Independent Institute for Real Growth, which has marketing and marketers central to its agenda in business and innovation. 500 CMOs have been through the Institute's high-level program in the past couple of years, and Mark made a fast charge down under just before Christmas to brief 50 CMOs on a global study the Institute released in January that argues marketers should be central to employee and stakeholder strategy and management. Somewhat new territory for an already stretched marketing scene, you'd have to say. A few weeks before that Australian visit, Mark was in the US speaking to 2,500 board members at the National Association of Corporate Directors. We'll get to that high-level stuff a little later, but first, a couple of other observations Mark sees coming through in his global dealings with blue-chip CMOs, boards, and executive leadership teams. First, he says ESG, or Environmental and Social Governance, which many in marketing see as future critical, has become the equivalent of Harry Potter's Voldemort, that nemesis that must not be named. ESG, Mark says, is now a dirty word. We'll dive into that along with his view that there is a generation of marketers who have been in their careers between five and 15 years that have focused too much on, and I quote, how to win and not where to play. Sounds a little intriguing, doesn't it? For context, Mark's visit to Australia before Christmas was to brief those 50 CMOs across WPP's client portfolio. Indeed, WPP, Meta, Google and Tata Consulting are among the Institute for Real Growth's global backers. In his conversations with those Australian CMOs, Mark articulated some contrarian views on how marketers and marketing can land more credibility and influence inside their companies. And perhaps provocatively, it's not about proving out the business case or quantifying marketing's contribution to revenues and profits. That, he says, is a defensive move. Rather, marketers can and should get on the front foot and be the conductors of company-wide stakeholder management strategies. In doing that, Mark argues, marketers actually become really useful to everyone in the C-suite. It's another intriguing argument, which is borne out in the new global study I mentioned earlier of 450-plus CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, and HR leads. So welcome back, Mark. Beaming in from New York. Um, it's been, I think, maybe four years since our, our last podcast, and there's a lot to cover today. Let's start with this observation of yours about marketing's next generation. What do you mean when you say they're too focused on how to win and not where to play, Mark? And welcome. Good to have you back. Yeah, nice to be back. Thank you for that uh, long-winded introduction, Paul. <laughs> Thank you, long-winded. I'm good at that stuff. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Uh, but well, I guess I should start with your your direct question. That's not an accusation. It's more a um, sort of recognition of what has happened in marketing in the last 20 years. I mean, there are very few disciplines that have, that have had such a kick up the butt as marketing. I mean, literally, if you just compare it, and there are still a few of us around who have been in marketing for 20 to 30 years, they'll know what I'm talking about. Just about everything has changed. The, the, the partners that we spend money with has changed significantly. The, the people that measure results and effectiveness have changed. Uh, the creatives have changed. The type of stuff we do, literally the executions where we spend our time per day has changed. And I do think that you can categorize those a little bit in the, what I think BCG once coined, the where to play and the how to win. And where perhaps in the past, I think a CMO was very much central to the C-suite, joined at the hips with uh, the, the overall business leadership, really discussing as equals, where are we taking this company? You know, Where are we going to go? What are we going to build? What markets are we going to dominate? Where are we going to break into? You know, those type of discussions, which is really the kind of business discussions that BCG refers to as where are we going to play? The honest truth is that everybody has had a really cold shower and a very, very fast sprint 
start in their career for many people in digital, trying to figure that out, understanding what the metrics are, understanding still. I mean, this week, Apple launches or pre-orders its new virtual reality glasses. We haven't got a clue how to use those yet. You know, there's all this new stuff coming. AI, we've had it for six months now. So we're all still trying to figure out how to win. And when you are totally, you know, absorbed by, by the how to win, there's less time for the where to play. And if at some point you haven't done that for a while, that muscle starts to become weak. And at some point, the other business leaders who are having those discussions notice that you're not showing up for those and they start to see you. And that is absolutely fact uh, underpinned. They start to see you less as a business leader and more as a functional leader. And that's when suddenly influence starts to wean and, and the discipline gets into danger. And that's definitely the case in, 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 in many instances. So in short, the argument here is that a lot of career marketers today are great at the tactical stuff, but are not in at the strategic level uh, at a business and in, inside the organization. Is it essentially what you're saying, Mark? Yes. Now, I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm mm. saying that they've been so busy that perhaps they're not being asked to contribute anymore. Perhaps they, right. they don't have the right arguments to fight their way into uh, the C-suite anymore. It's an unreputable uh, fact that there are fewer CMOs at the boardroom table. And uh, it's absolutely true that a lot of marketers feel that they, they've lost some influence. But the good news, because I really don't want to bang the beat and the drums anymore of, oh, we're losing influence and, oh, look how what a crisis marketing is in, because I actually think that we're going to be talking the rest of this on conversation about mm. something that's a massive opportunity for marketing to increase influence, to increase impact, and interestingly, to increase tenure as mm. a marketing leader. Well, so before we do that, just quickly then, so those five to 15-year career markers you talk about, just in terms of putting up a flag to go, do what you need to do, but do more. What are the first two or three things um, that they should be thinking about in terms of correcting that? It's undoubtedly part of uh, what they like anyway. Not for all, though. It's the real business. It's the commercial. It's the entrepreneurial. It's the literally where do we want to take this business, the vision of who do we want to be five years from now, and therefore what do we need to start thinking about now. That's the, the area I'm talking about. All right, well, we're going to get to the hints that you talked about a little bit earlier just after this one, which is what's happening to ESG. You say at a corporate level, it's very on the nose. We see investors and there's all sorts of case studies and your old firm, Unilever, is sort of under the pump a little bit on all this too, right? So yes. you say it's almost uh, Voldemort-esque, if yes. you could use that word, in terms of um, business context. What's going on? It's funny. I actually related to an experience uh, 20 years ago with Dove Real Beauty. So Dove arguably was one of the first big brands that really got purpose right in a campaign that went all over the world. There's many purposeful companies out there that have always done the right wing, but this was a brand that re sort of rediscovered its purpose. And with the, uh, the campaign for real beauty, then went on to make huge marketing success out of that. And, and, and what it was really saying is, listen, of course we sell you know, the creams and the soaps like everyone else, but rather than tell you like everyone else does, that unless you use our products, you're not okay, we're telling you, you are beautiful already as you are, and this helps you be who you are. And, and that is really, that was code breaking uh, and therefore highly innovative and differentiating and competitive for the Dove brand. And very early, like it was what, 12, 15 years ago, perhaps. I'm not sure, 10 no. years ago at least. 2000, no. there you go. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember uh, that. I was much uh, younger. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, but fast forward two years. You know, it was a competitive and differentiating business strategy with a great campaign. Fast forward two years, you've got marketers, particularly younger marketers, on the teams of Dove worldwide who are highly motivated by this purpose and who think that that's actually what Dove's reason for being is. And they forget, to, they start to forget to mention that actually it's a moisturizing cream and that it has moisturization uh, effects. They forget to innovate in the realm of the products in personal care that matter. And so there was a, a relapse about two years in where there was a real 
correction needed within the Dove community of, hey guys, we know you're inspired by this, as are we, but remember, we're here to sell soap. <laughs> and this is our competitive strategy, and it's who we are to sell soap. And that last bit got forgotten by a lot of people. In fact, mm. you could even say that that's exactly where Budweiser Light was, what is it, six months ago, when an inspired marketer honestly thought she was improving the world by doing the initiatives that she was leading, except they didn't connect to the core DNA of the company. Anyway, now fast forward to your question about ESG. So I think that over the last few years, there's been a totally appropriate level of attention for DEI and ESG. In America, they now get thrown onto the same heap as in the sort of corrections that business need to do to become accepted. Yeah, and so with that comes an air of uh, social and moral justification, and and with that has come a huge movement towards hitting ESG metrics and doing the right things that uh, DEI demands. And with that, apparently, in some instances, it's led to an overcorrection, where you know ESG is a metric; it's not a goal. It's what you measure. It's, a, it's like, a, like a ruler that you can put next to your actions to say, how far did we go? So when you, when you buy a ruler, your business strategy doesn't become one foot. The ruler is to measure your progress. ESG is a metric you use to measure your ESG progress. Anyway, not everybody understands that. And so there have been companies that have gone overboard with all the wokeness and greenwashing that... Uh, uh, has happened, think of AB InBev, where you know companies have done unsound business strategy. They've gone overboard on the ESG or on the DEI, and they've forgotten what they exist for. So now we're seeing the backlash because, of course, some of those things led to bad business results. They lead to accusations, I mean, to the extreme. I don't know if you saw this one. There are people on the right here in America that are actually accused, blaming DEI for the door that flew out of that Boeing 787. I'm not joking. <laughs> there is a serious movement in the political rights where people say that because Boeing was so obsessed with hiring different people, it forgot to check their qualifications. It's bullshit, of course. Mm. But that's what the backlash looks like. So now, and in times of economic challenge, suddenly it is very, very unsexy to say that you're doing these things. But mm. there is a big... But, and I think you'll probably get to that, but that's my explanation for the viral mode effect. Great points. And I guess, though, just to elaborate on that, it's it's also driven by, and you, you've touched on it, in the Unilever case, it's a sort of an investor, a core investor in Unilever who's sort of pushed back against that, right, and wants more efficiency and profits and all sorts of other things. So there's, there is a, a consumer an executive and an investment sort of challenge going, an investor community challenge going on around ESG at the moment, right? Oh, it's even more complicated than that, Paul. What I'm we a simple say, man, sorry. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to try and explain it in simple terms. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so we talk about the four Cs. It's your colleagues. It's the community, including the, world, the planet we live on. It's the customers. And it's the capital markets, which is your investors. Got it. Over the last decade, every single one of them has become better informed, louder, and more demanding. The Economist dedicated an issue to it last summer, which was called the overstretched CEO. And you see a CEO being pulled in, literally being quartered, all four directions, two arms, two legs going different directions. Yes, I saw that, yeah. Yes. Well, so that's what's happening. No one is uh, actually receding and saying, oh, well, you know, you need to give more money to your employees, so I'll just take a bit of a back seat. So the, the trouble for leaders and whether you're talking Unilever or Danon before that, and many, many others, is that, okay, I now understand. And they made that declaration. Remember in 2019, all our stakeholders are important. I understand. I feel that that's the right way to lead a business. However, for the last 50 years, I kind of ignored a few of them and just focused on my investors. So how do I move from what we call in you know this shareholder primacy that they're more important than everyone else to one where I'm creating value for all stakeholders and you're bound to get that wrong you almost can't please all of them at the same time it's just a matter of how do you manage that journey that pivot 
in such a way that you don't get fired along the way. And that has happened to a, two, to a few CEOs on the way. We had a piece in today, actually, with the global CMO at Emphasis, um, Sumit Dramani. He, he cites an interesting stat, actually, which is that uh, just on that, uh, that whole area that uh, in, according to the Net Zero report um, from South Pole, a consultancy South Pole, 83% of companies have set, have set net zero targets, but 58% are decreasing communications on climate issues. So they're, uh, to your point, they're sort of doing it, but they're not saying it now. Um, I think that probably resonates with you. Uh, it, it, and so I can actually give you uh, a comparable stats from our latest study. Uh, the first is that 90% of overperforming organizations, the leaders at overperforming organizations, say that they see stakeholder value creation as an opportunity, not a risk. 50% mm. of the underperformers see it as an opportunity, and 50% see it as a risk. So it's 90-10 versus 50-50. So that starts with the mindset that overperformers have. But a full one-third say, we stop talking about it because we're going to get accused of either being woke or of greenwashing, whatever we say. And that's why our latest report, sorry to trump that drum for a moment, I'm mixing musical instruments there, I think. But anyway. And, and of course, but it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> the sound that comes out in the end is too. Um, but, but quite frankly, when companies stop talking about what they're doing, they're not learning from each other. And this is really difficult. You're always going to make someone unhappy when you start to reprioritize how you add value. I'd love to talk more about that. But that means you need to educate people and you need to share with your colleagues what's worked and what hasn't worked. And that's why we decided to launch the impact study because people are saying to us, we're doing it, but we're just not talking about it. So right now then, if marketing and marketers do see ESG and purpose as part of their sort of uh, remit and positioning for the company to customers, prospects, and stakeholders, what do you see the good ones doing now? Like, how are they managing this new sort of vacuum of communication, if nothing, if, if they're behaving differently? But what do they do? Well, I, I, I'm not saying that, Paul. Just to uh, sort of pull that carpet away, I'm not saying that that's where they should be uh, focusing. Uh, what I'm saying is that that is one thing, these are two things rather, that companies need to be focusing on, the whole right. company. One of our key conclusions is it's a team sport. When you start to deliver value for all these other stakeholders, you are crossing silos, you're crossing functions. Marketing is traditionally responsible for the customer, of course, or at least the consumer. You could argue that chief communication officers are much better placed to play a leading role in this than marketers are. And I think their collaboration is really important in this. No, yeah, what we're point. saying, and this is where the opportunity lies, when companies realize that they need to do this better, which you and I were talking in the preamble a little bit about Davos, which was last week and the week before, you know, it's very clear, actions speak louder than words. People are doing this. People are trying to get this right. So companies are trying to get this right. And that's the way it should be thought about. What we're saying is marketers can play a key role in helping the company get this right. And it is indeed, as you said, it's not about the block and tackling of marketing itself and proving that your you know, marketing payback and ROI is, is better than someone else's. I'm assuming in the old T diagram of a job, you know, the vertical is what you're best at. For the CFO, that's finance. And for the CMO, it's marketing. I'm assuming that you get this right, that you're just really good at it. But what I'm also saying is that, and that's our research shows that very clearly, that when as a CMO, you step up and you go across to your colleagues and say, do you know what, Mr. or Mrs. HR, creating value for our employees is clearly more important. But actually, the way you're managing the employee brand, well, I've got a lot of marketeers. We're, we're actually good at managing and building brands. Would you like us to sort of chip in, sit on on the discussion, maybe think with you about how to do employee comms, because that's what we do for a living. I'm not going to take over. I'm just going to help you be successful. And when you do that as a marketer, you know, in the extra 20% of your job, now you're building boardroom relationships across the functions. And there's a McKinsey report from, I think, two years ago that shows a direct correlation between the impact of the CMO when they do that and the tenure. Because basically, you're making lots of buddies who right. you are making successful. So why would they fire you? Yeah. 
And this is, I guess, the the crux of of this new study, this this global research that you've released, I think, last month, Mark. Those top line findings are arguing exactly what you've just said. So basically, there's a new role for marketers. Yeah. So because the study is not a marketing study, it has a mm. marketing deep dive, but we actually go across the whole C-suite. We've got literally representation uh, with dedicated 35 plus interviews at the board level, the CEO level, the CFO, the CHRO, the CCO, and obviously the CMO. And there's a big over-representation of CMOs, but you know we've really got a good sample there. And the goal of that was, and that's what we're doing now, is to be able to go into a boardroom, into an exco, and say, guys, you recognize you need to be doing this. Yes, we do. We know it's difficult. Yes, it is. Here are some ways that companies that overperform are doing it. And there's a model there. I can walk you through it if you like. But in all of those five steps, marketing can actually help you do that better. So why don't you go into the marketing department and say, hey, guys, we're having a discussion about our stakeholder map. And someone said to us, that's just like market research. That's what you do, right? Can you come help us? And when marketers offer that up proactively, they're creating pool or they're giving upward push. And when the boards realize this and start asking, we're creating pool. And so the whole goal of this impact study is indeed to create both so that they can meet in the middle. And the conversations you've had in that study, the C-suite wants that. They want marketers, they want that stakeholder thing and they want marketers to play. It's interesting. It's all about the how. If you say to a CHRO. Which is HR, right? So that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that's head of HR. Yep. You know what? We've done a neutral analysis, you know, on the effectiveness of communication. Your employee brand in strength of positioning scores a 60, whereas your consumer brand score an 80 to 90. So there's a gap there. And we looked at your comms and we actually think that compared to your other campaigns, your brand campaigns, you're probably at 50% effectiveness. But you do have some people in the building that might be able to help you with that. They're open to that. If mm-hmm. they don't feel that it's a land grab by marketing to prove how successful and important they are, Got if it. they feel it's collegiality, that it's common sense of responsibility of growing the company, creating value for another stakeholder, then yes, they want it. If they feel that marketing is land grabbing, no. They'll go to enormous lengths to explain why the marketer is not the right person to help with the employee brand, which we all know is other rubbish. You got some case studies on that, Mark? Is there someone doing that or has oh, done yeah. that well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we have many of them. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, there's a Dauer Bergsman. He's the CMO of Piedmont, which is the He's largest great. healthcare He's been system. on the podcast. He's done amazing stuff. Yeah. Oh, really? No. Yeah. So, so he gets appointed, you know, he was the CMO of a, a paper company. He moves to this healthcare system. Everybody thinks, really? Dow, is that what you want to do? But it's huge. Mm. Huh? It's the biggest in Georgia. I think they have like 42 hospitals. I mean, it's just humongous. It's, it's something like a $6 billion business in one state or some crazy number. It's still the scale of it, right? I actually think it's bigger than that. Yeah, it is very right. significant. So the CEO, he goes to the CEO and he, and he basically says, look, uh, look, I know who my stakeholders are as marketing. You know, it's my consumers. It's a few. And, uh, and I heard the CHRO talk about his stakeholders and it's, you know, it's the unions and it's the regulators and it's uh, OSHA, the safety people. And, but what we haven't got as a company is an integrated stakeholder map. We haven't got one map. So when we're taking decisions as a board, we're not looking at one map. We're looking in, through everybody in the table, we're looking at eight maps. Swim lanes galore. Exactly. So I've just learned, he said, that it actually, that overperforming organizations have an aligned understanding, because that's what the impact study demonstrates, of the overall stakeholders of the organization, who they are, what matters to them, and how much they can impact us. So basically how we impact them and how they impact us. Shall I create an integrated? You know, I've, I've got market research in my uh, group. Why don't I ask them to work with each of the disciplines and just develop for the first time an integrated stakeholder map. Oh, yes, please, said the CEO. Mm. Six months on, not only have they got the stakeholder map that they're now building their strategy, their corporate strategy on, he's at the table. And not only Mm. that, but when the chief communication officer left, the CEO said, why don't you take that on as well? There you go. 
is a great example uh, and a good example of, of a marketer doing that. One more to tease us. Yeah, so easy. Uh, last week at, uh, at the launch in uh, Oxford, we had Javier Meza. He's the CMO of Coca-Cola Europe, all of Europe. He said, oh, Mark, yeah, I can talk about this. The, the employees, well, we have works councils all over Europe. They have these things called works councils. You can't do anything without consulting them. So rather, that's not an HR thing. I, as the marketer, go there. And one, I listen to them because I really want to understand what the vibe is in the different plants in the different countries in Europe. But two, I explain the strategy to them. I'm the one that actually takes them through the vision for the business and the brands. And then I'm the one engaging. And so he's sitting in what, you know, in America would probably be an HR meeting. The CMO is doing that with the Works Council. Mm. Lots of examples. One more then. Uh, mm -hmm. Another CMO, that part of the impact study, we actually asked the CMOs in our program to pilot what we were recommending in their own firms. So she actually went to her CHRO and said, I'd like to talk to you about how we do communication and positioning for our employees. What's the value proposition? Have we actually got a clear view and have we explained to them what we think the value proposition is of working here? And is there like an, an, an employee journey map? you know, through the first five years of your career, how you see that you're growing because we're giving you these different experiences and blah, blah, blah. And the head of HR said, you know what? All of those we don't have. All of those are good ideas. Can I ask you to work with my number two to develop the employee brand positioning and our next recruitment campaign? So that's what happened. New, she literally told me, I walked out of the meeting with two new projects. I can pull many more. They're really good examples. I guess my question is, certainly in this market, in Australia, Mark, we're seeing the marketing function, the CMO, incredibly stretched with new remits. You talked about it right at the start, right? So whereas might in the past been comms, marketing comms and branding, yeah. now there's customer experience, there's acquisition, there's, uh, there's AI, there's data and analytics, there's privacy, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Yeah, This adds another one in a completely new area where there is no, essentially no skill base or no, no, no proven no, capability. No. No, there is, there is. So this I, is, I, I want to argue with you on this point, Paul. I think all the things you just mentioned, you know, if you're a marketing leader, you've got somebody, hopefully, that's getting in, you know, getting into the trench, getting their feet dirty and working, figuring out how the new metrics work or how the new medium works or how creativity in this digital space works or how a... That's not, at least I hope, that's not what you're working on day to day as a CMO. This is the where to play part. This is actually stuff you do have muscle for already. Building a, uh, an employee brand is no different than building a consumer brand in its you know, core. So you're just bringing what you're good at, but you're applying your muscle in service of others, ultimately mm, okay. in service of the bigger entity. Great point. Fair point. I'll shut up on that one, Mark, because it's um, you're right. It's just a, it's a repurposing of their capability, flexing the marketing muscle. Where to from here, Mark? But maybe just a couple of more teasers on on some of those core top line findings from this global study. Well, I, I'd love to take you through what we call the five drivers of humanized growth, uh, because there is a sequentiality, and we've got examples for all of them, but they're very important to get right. We've already talked about the stakeholder map, uh, and in fact. We call that first driver grounding yourself as a company. And there's two parts to that. There's a self and there's an uh, external reality. The self is know thyself. Know where you've come from. Know who you are, what you're good at as an organization, what your people are inspired by, what, what really is the DNA of an organization. You know, need to know who you are. Secondly, you need to know these stakeholders. So what their reality is. You may not like it, you may not agree with it, but apparently you got to deal with it because they're your stakeholders. So that's the grounding of the business in reality. The second part is the forward-looking, what we call reimagining. And what we see great companies do there is develop what we call a utopian vision, a positive vision for the future. For example, General Motors uh, looked at the market of the morning commute, which of course is a massive part of their business. And they said, zero emissions, zero crashes, zero fatalities. And I'm, I'm blanking on the third one now. But anyway, and so that's a vision for a utopian future. 
And great companies actually take the trouble to also make the dystopian version. You know, what's going to happen? Think blockbusters or Netflix, rather, when they still had DVDs. And Kodak, the obvious one. Yes. So that's a reimagining of where the world will go. It's not about us yet. It's just a getting aligned as a board, as an exco. What is going to be the reality that we need to operate in? We need to be successful in 10 years from now. And so there's hard stats there that overperformers do this well, thinking long-term versus short-term, a massive difference between over and underperformers. But then secondly, within that is the purpose. It is the corporate purpose. Now, purpose has almost become one of those Voldemort words, right? Because people are like, really? Well, when you say purpose, most people think Dove Real Beauty or Patagonia. But actually, I would call those cause-related purposes. That's less than 20% of all purposes. There's Mm. great work here. You know, purpose is just knowing what you're supposed to do as a company, who you want to be in an inspiring way. Purpose for Amazon is we're going to always be the best one to get you that package by tomorrow. You know, they have a functional, a capability purpose. For a lot of companies, it's literally about making great over-returns, money. It's not the majority of companies, but it's about a quarter of companies like banks and, and, and investment firms, for them, it's really about superior financial results. And for others, it's about how the company works, like the culture. Mars, great example. Mars is a culture-led purpose company. They really care more about how the people feel in the company than they care about the bottom line. Now, they believe that the bottom line follows but that is literally what drives it. It's a family-held company, as you know. I was going to say, they had the luxury of being privately held, though, don't they? Exactly. No, no, there's a, there's a massive correlation between publicly listed and financially oriented organizations. But as I said, cause-related is only about 20%. So developing a purpose and having clarity among all your stakeholders what that purpose is and that it's inspiring to them so that they want to work for you, so that they want to do business with you, blah de blah want to buy your products, that's the second part. So that second driver is what we call reimagine. And again, it is about the outside. What do we imagine the future will be? And it's about who. Who do we want to be there? That's the, the real. Okay, but can I just stop you? I'm sorry. I'm a bit jaded as a journo and editor covering this stuff and business, right? But you sit there and talk about that need for purpose. I've got to say, I've been talking about that for 25 years, Mark, about vision, yeah. purpose, blah, blah, blah. So like we're still there. We're still talking, yeah, still working on the same projects. I have the stats for you. Clarity on purpose in our organization, or we filter our key strategic decisions with our purpose. It's like a 70-30 differential between overperformers and underperformers. Yeah, does everyone Mm. now have a plaque next to the elevator with some vanilla language that we don't uh, beat the little children and and, and that we pay our farmers reasonably? Yeah, but that's not what I mean. I meant an inspiring purpose that's really used as a filter to discriminate the yes or the no in key business decisions. Yeah. And well, um, it's important you make that distinction because there's a lot of shingles and yeah. uh, shingles are pretty much that, right? They just hang out the window and say something, don't necessarily walk it. Okay. You got me activated now. I want to give you one more thing on purpose because I think you're right. So many people are jaded on purpose because they saw Target get attacked for its LGBT activities or they saw Disney get attacked in Florida or they saw most recently AB InBev get attacked, Right. And they're like, no, 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 staying away, you know, barge pole distance, please. The difference is, think of Nike with Colin Kaepernick. He was suddenly disliked by half the country. So what does Nike do? Because it sells shoes to 100% of the country. It stood by his side. Why? Backed it, didn't it? Yeah. Why? Because they have always stood by the athletes. Now, as luck would have it, most athletes are generally liked. This time it wasn't. But Nike's board knew that there was only one choice. And they also knew that every employee was on their side. So when they got the flak, everybody stood strong. strong. Contrast that to AB InBev, who were doing, you know, I think literally well-motivated and well-intended outreach to the GBLT community with a personalized can of AB InBev Bud Light. And uh, yes, it's a nice idea, but guess what? It has nothing to do with the DNA of that company. And in fact, most of the people that work there are in the southern and midwestern states, and they are not there. They don't believe in this at all. So when they heard that this was suddenly what their brand people were doing, they were like, F you, I don't want this. So that was a company where there was no backs 
backbone. There was no spine because it wasn't who they really are. What about Gillette and the shaving escapade, what, a couple of years ago? Yeah, no, you know what? I don't know enough about it. I'd be bluffing by giving you an answer. I haven't Mm. studied it closely. I know it's Mm. had pushback. I, I, I prefer talking... Uh, case studies where I've done my research. You're across it. No, no, that's fine. It was a, it was a wild shot, but it just it just made me say, well, should they have capitulated? Because they capitulated pretty quickly as well, right? For similar reasons, probably to the AB and AB and well, the, the Bud Light well, scenario. Look, it is undeniable, just like ESG and DEI, that sadly, when someone gets something right, there's like the whole flock of was it called it lemmings do the same thing and do it badly. And so I think there are many examples where it was done badly. And, uh, and, and therefore, yes, there probably are lots of examples where we can point to say that, not that. I mean, look, PepsiCo and Black Lives Matters. Oh, you know, I'll hand the policeman and the protester both a Pepsi and they'll all be friends. What the fuck? People were getting killed in the streets, you know? <laughs> so it has to be true to who you are as a company. And very few pass that acid test. And it's an important marker uh, because I think, you know, it does get fuzzy, certainly in, in the marketing area and the communications, corporate affairs. There is, there's interesting tension between those two groups on how this plays out as well. But anyway, we digress. We are at three of five, so and, and I know we're going to run out of time, so let's go, Mark. Well, the third is all about focus. Uh, that's what we call it. It is about, look, when you go cross-stakeholder, it gets complicated. And so what we see with focus is that these companies are able to actually present an integrated strategy where not only they say what they're going to do, they also say what they're not going to do. Think CVS walking away from cigarette sales because they want to become a health company. It's a beautiful case study. They walked away from $3 billion worth of revenue or profit. I don't, I always get confused. Probably revenue. That's a lot of profit. And they did it. And the stock price went up because there was that strategic clarity. It is literally about not playing whack-a-mole with every issue because issues come up every day of the week. But when you have an integrated strategy, you can address the short-term issues, which will always appear, but in the context of a long-term strategy. Can I have a little rant here and ask you a question? So it's a really good point. And when you talk about the whack-a-mole of potential, you know, issues that bob up, it does seem in that short-term corporate affairs reputation management agenda that the, it's, it's de-risking. It's basically trying lower risk and any sort of fallout is seen as risk and bad where, to your point, you made case studies where people hold, uh, companies hold the line, but there is this very, I see it here now, everyone's shutting down and not wanting to say anything. So there is a knee-jerk, well, not a knee-jerk, there's a kind uh, of swing back to, to small targets. Yeah, look, it's a reality. And uh, I am not saying that great companies talk more about it than bad companies. I'm realize, I'm recognizing the reality. I'm just making the point that the danger of that is that lots of lessons learned, especially when we need them now, are not being shared. And then it's up to institutions like ours to go through the motions and go through the research and have the difficult conversations, get the data, and get out there and share the learning. Okay, three was focus. All right, so four is about organize. And, and really what we see more and more in, among overperformers here is one, they recognize that when you start working across the silos, which again is necessary if you're going to drive stakeholder value, you need interdependence. You need much more collaboration across the silos. And so there's a whole leadership model that goes with this. It's really about collaborating more at three levels. And the funny thing is the first one doesn't actually differentiate between over and under performers. It's cooperating more with other players in your industry. Think Patagonia and Walmart on sustainable clothing, right? That's a cross-industry collaboration. Everyone's doing it. So the score for overperformers and underperformers were equal. So it's not a differentiator. You just need to be doing it. It's become hygiene. More difficult, and there is a significant difference, albeit small, but it's statistically significant, between over and underperformers is collaborating with NGOs like the... um, the Amazon uh, Alliance or um, the World Federation of Animals, you know, any NGO collaborating Marine with Science Institute or whatever it is, all that. Yep, yep. Yeah. Research Institute. And, you know, this great example in, in Australia about the uh, the wildfires and uh, an insurance company actually working NRMA. with... Oh. Yeah, exactly. That's me. Uh, uh, you know, great work collaborating with 
other players to develop a, a house that's resistant to a forest fire. Oh, take that back. That's Suncorp. Sorry, it's a rival it's of NRMA. It's, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's Suncorp. I thought you said it's May, uh, uh, the MIM. MIM is the CMO. Oh, MIM, MIM Hasten, the CMO. That's exactly. right, yes. He did our program brilliantly there. Anyway, so that's sort of collaborating with NGOs. Even more difficult, and the gap between over and under performers even bigger, is collaborating with government and regulatory authorities. Think uh, Lifeboy in India around hand washing around times of COVID. Yeah? Right. Once the government gets behind your program, you've got a bulldozer working with you. However, to get them there, you need a whole team of people that act like bureaucrats because they need to work with bureaucrats. And most companies kind of don't like that. So it Mm. really takes significant time and resources to invest to get that right. But what we see in the data is it pays back because then you can effectively collaborate. So the fourth is organizing across silos internally and across the ecosystem beyond the borders of your direct company. And then the fifth is all about you, the leader. We call it the Da Vinci leader. The Da Vinci leader is, we're also calling that sort of the humanized growth leader. It's a leader that brings some new qualities that with Spencer Stewart and the B team, we found out to be not only differentiating, but also key to success. So why Da Vinci? Everybody knows Da Vinci was both creative and analytical, which is already quite a unique mix, right? Uh, right brain and left brain. But what most people don't know about Da Vinci, he was also one of the founders of the humanist movement. And the humanist movement says it all. That's the empathy part. That's the, I'm interested in your, your you know, I, I, I saw this scene once where Gandhi was talking to the Viscount of uh, the UK in India. And, uh, and and he said, we disagree on everything. And, and Gandhi looked at him and said, how interesting. You know, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is, it, that's the point. To find that interesting, not to walk away, not to switch the channel. The new leader doesn't have to have all the answers, but the new leader does need to listen to the other stakeholders. And at some point, make them feel heard is half the challenge. And then take decisions or have people propose decisions. It's far less the Jack Welsh. It's much more the, all right, let's get the right people in the room. Let's listen to each other. Let's really understand the different perspectives, and then let's take the right business decision that addresses stakeholder value for all of you. It's fascinating stuff, Mark, and I know it's global and it's big and you've got some serious uh, weight behind it. You did come to Australia before Christmas, maybe late November, early December, and you were talking about this very study with 50 Australian CMOs. Mm. What were the conversations, observations, uh, and questions from the Australian marketing fraternity on this? And I should say this is part of what you do with WPP because of your global uh, alliance or partnership with the Institute on this, yeah. right? Yeah, so they are one of our founders. Uh, so they pay you know, about a quarter of our bills. And um, just to be very clear, we're totally independent. Uh, they don't get slots to speak at and so, but what they get is seats in our program to give to their clients. And what we also do from time to time for all four of our partners is that we go to events that they host for their clients and share the learning that we've gathered. So they don't have mm. influence, but we happily, I, mean, I think we, they deserve the credit for funding an institute like ours. So it's a, it's a, it's a win-win relationship. But, so um, Meta and Google do the other thing. Just I know I'm going to segue here because I can't help myself. But so uh, WPP, Meta, Google, obvious. But the interesting one for me is Tata Consulting. Like, ah, yes. Out of the sort of left field for me to have someone like them uh, oh. be involved with, with you. Explain I, that because there's a good rationale behind it. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't be more proud of them. I actually had uh, lunch yesterday with the chairman of, uh, of Tata uh, North America. This company, since I believe it was 1847, the founder said, what we get from society goes back to society. Now, mm. a lot of people have said a lot of nice things, but what they do, they give two thirds of their profit back to society. I don't know anyone else that does that. 1% is what I've heard. Two Just to be thirds. clear, to be clear, Tata Consulting, but there's also Automotive. Are they the same company we're talking yes. about here? No, it's not Tata Consulting. It's Tata that does this. Tata Consulting right. is part of Tata Consulting. The, okay, the, so they have steel, they have cars. There. You know, obviously, Tata Consulting is 
uh, is a typically in the past IT consulting business. They do a lot of back office stuff, you know, for e-commerce and so, and they want to understand marketers better, which is why they joined the IOG because we know marketers really well. And so they mm. get exposure to our programs and they're sitting there with huge ears learning how the marketers think because they've never spoken to marketers and marketers don't know who they are. it's like tc who but yeah, they yeah, are yeah. genuinely interested to understand the way that marketers uh, frame these opportunities around personalization and databases and so but they're also one of the most purposeful companies if not the most purposeful company i've ever dealt with so Tata would usurp Patagonia if you talk about cause related. If you, I mean, maybe I'm mixing your uh, your your yeah. definitions there, but no, no, they are deaf. I mean, literally, you just spend five minutes on the Tata website, and mm. uh, you know, those are one of my favorite uh, Netflix shows of the last half year is called The Way We Work. If you haven't seen it, all of your listeners and readers and, and watchers should go see it. It's Obama. So Obama and his wife sponsored the production of all these TV shows. This is one of them. And it looks at four people. It's four episodes. I think they're all an hour at the different stratas of the economy. So the very lowest is healthcare workers that go into people's homes and change their diapers, you know, that work. Unbelievably impressive. The second is the gig economy. It's the Uber drivers of the world and so forth. The third level is the managers of those people and, you know, of IT departments and so. And the fourth level is literally the leaders. And at several points, Tata actually, ultimately, they profiled the Tata CEO. I mean, if you want somebody to look up to. So, I was going to say, it sounds like you want to be like him when you grow up, Mark. Yeah, that's well, I, I do not mind saying yes to that. I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, so, so, so let's, we better get back to the um, the Australian conversation because I'm, yes. I'm conscious that um, we want that. So, how did the conversations, questions, and and observations uh, on the Australian market when you presented this stuff? Well, look, I, look. The first thing to say is we did a deep dive in Australia. So, Australia is one of the seven markets where we did more than thirty interviews, and so there was a real good representation. And those interviews, are you allowed, can you talk about the companies that you did interview in that? Can you name them for the oh, yeah. for the study? I, I, look, I actually probably should have prepped better and have them by my side. But it's literally a, a who's important uh, in, in Australia. It was a really nice mix of B2B and B2C. There was financial there. There was a, a really good representation. And uh, what the uh, WPP leadership team did, they did the interviews. And, uh, right. and, and they summarized what is unique to Australia before or immediately after I presented the global findings. And they actually talked through those five drivers of humanized growth and then gave Australian examples, like Mason was one of them, uh, Australian examples of CMOs doing what I had just said we saw overperforming marketers do. And the bottom line for me, because Australia always wants to know how we're different. I mean, how you're different, you're just so freaking far away. But otherwise, you're not. You're just like England. You're just like America. You're a very advanced marketing market. You're extremely different to all the surrounding markets. I'm going to Asia, uh, all across Asia in, in, in a few weeks. You're very, very different to them, but you're exactly the same as the problems and the challenges, but also the opportunities that we hear and see in countries like Belgium, Holland, the UK, and the US or Canada. So that central argument in, in your latest study that says marketing, marketers, getting engaged in stakeholder management, did the Australian fraternity get that, buy that, see it, going to do it? And great examples of that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think if anything, I left with a real respect for the can-do approach of the Australian marketer. I think you know, if I had to sort of distinguish some of the things that are a little different, there's a little less, no, a lot less whining <laughs> about the loss right. of influence and so. Listen, they see that happening, but they're sort of like, well, let's trap up and let's get going. What am I going to do about it? And I love mm. that mindset in Australia. There was a real can-do, win-win mindset. And I only heard people say, you know what, I'm doing this already, but I'm not doing these four. I'm going to do them. That was sort mm. of the the theme of the day. So what happens now? You've got the study. Okay. What do you hope to do and by when? Or what do you hope to see happen by when? 
Well, so it's very much a dual purpose, as I uh, said before. We, and that is uh, the people in the Institute for Real Growth, we're hitting the road. And uh, we're literally going to anyone that will have us. If it's a senior business leadership team of over 20, we will spend an hour with them to explain that overperformers not only understand that they need to create value for all stakeholders, but that there's also a way to do it. There is a way to do it because the current thinking is, if I do it, I get my head chopped off. That's why it's a Voldemort. So we are countering that with Mm. examples, with winning examples. And with the key message there, you've probably got the resources already. You're just underutilizing them, which is your marketers. That is a great message to share with the general business population. And so you will see articles, you'll see big conference speeches all around the world. Secondly, we have capability programs like our own, but for example, we also run the ANA's Marketing CMO Leadership Program in the US here, where we're challenging marketers that they do need to step up. If if the CMO doesn't go to the CHRO and say, can we have an entrepreneur about the quality of our positioning as an employee brand, you know, or can my people help your people while they're developing the employee experience journey? Yeah. If that doesn't, you know, they're not going to come to you. You need to go to them. Mm. So it's Mm. a push-pull strategy. And and I would be genuinely proud of the Institute for Real Growth and our team if a year from now we could say that that's not happening in 500 organizations, but it's happening in 5,000 organizations. To any degree, that's our mission. Our purpose is to drive more humanized growth. That's what we spend our time on. So let's lock in a diary uh, for 12 months' time and and see where you're at on that 5,000 axis. And I won't hold you to it, but I get the trajectory of it. But it'd be good to catch up, you know, and see how it's actually landed. Because sometimes these things are received well, they're talked about, but do can be... I recognize that. And, uh, And look, I am not Davos. Nor was mm. I, I actually was uh, giving a speech at the middle of Davos, but I was giving it in New York. And I said, and some right. of you might be wondering why we decided not to be in Davos this week. And the honest answer is we weren't invited. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. I, I do aim to be in Davos next year. We see this as an, a, a ripple effect and we're going to do everything. And we've got a community. There's 500 CMOs worldwide now. It's a very strong mm. community that is actually uh, carrying this uh, this thought leadership and practice forward. Mark DeSwan-Aarons, thanks for joining. And um, I make sure if you get back down here before our 12-month engagement, let's have another chat. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the time. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.